Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 131 with my friend, Jesse Ball. I had a great conversation with Jesse. We got in deep with ADHD and drinking and all sorts of stuff. Uh, this We talked for over two hours and I had to do a lot of editing because I cannot give you guys a two hour long episode. I don't think anyone would listen to that, right? Is that, that's too long. Even my favorite podcast. I don't want to sit there for two hours, but, uh, great conversation. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it, but I'm not going to hold you back any longer so you can get right to it. So without further ado, here's my friend, Jesse. You and I have lots in common. My request is sent. Would you like to be my friend? So I'm already primed and ready to just <laughs> talk about myself. Me, me, me. Yay. Well, hi. First of all, I mean, well, Hello. I haven't seen you in so long. I know. I was very sad to hear that you're in Ohio. Um, I was like, oh, I get to see Jesse in person. No. No. No such luck. Um, if I ever get travel reinstated for work, I will be down there and I will make you come to a place and see me okay. but until then um yeah <laughs> um i don't know what you know what you don't know but i normally start these out with how i know you yeah and i know you i've listened to a few episodes of yours so. yeah some familiar familiar, with the familiar people the basic framework yeah yeah i know you from best <laughs> buy where we Got to work close and intimately behind a very tight desk. <laughs> very intimate. Um, very tight. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, called Best Buy Mobile. Uh, I will tell you, obviously, like, I'm, I'm assuming you alluded to listening to people that worked with us at Best Buy. Um, of all the jobs I had at that store over the, like, eight years I was there, Best Buy Mobile was by far the most fun. And I think it was, like... 70% people and then like 30% technology. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it. And I have a lot of fond memories. There's a lot of, there's a lot of areas of, of that eight years I spent there that are not fond memories, but all the time that I spent sure. uh, alongside <laughs> you and crystal and people I can't remember. I'm not even calling out Jason Faulkner. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I guess I did. Um, but that's, that's all I know of you as far as the time we spent together there. And then this kind of plays perfectly into the podcast because outside of that, all I know about you is like Facebook. Like I know some gaming stuff. I know piano stuff. I know like the stuff you choose to share publicly that I might like comment on or we might slide into each other's DMs once in a while. But that's, uh, that's about it. And so I want to dive a little deeper and, and rewind. And you're in Ohio, which we've discussed, but you said that's where you're from? Yep. So you're born so, born and raised or just born? Born and partially raised in Dayton. Uh, Dayton, Ohio, the Air Force mm -hmm. capital of Air Force land. Yep, right. Pat's just that way. That way. <laughs> Listeners, you can't see, but he pointed in a direction. <laughs> direction for space. <laughs> Um, siblings? One. I have an older brother. How much older? 
seven years. Oh, that's a that's a big leap. Yeah, and I are is this the podcast? Are we podcasting now? Yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. <laughs> sure, we can use this. One. We're always um, podcasting. No, so I have an older brother. He's seven years older, and I often forget that I have a brother. Mm. So we moved to Michigan when I was 11. So I had just finished sixth grade, was about to go into seventh. My brother had just graduated high school and he was 18 at that time. So he chose to stay in Ohio and we abandoned him. Um, <laughs> so we moved out to Michigan. And so for all of my like teen years, your formative years and a lot of my adult life, you know, we were in different states. And so I'd see him, you know, maybe one to three times a year, you know, yeah. birthdays, holidays, that sort of thing. But, uh, and we were never close to begin with because that is a pretty large age gap. Um, well, yeah, I imagine when you're start, like having your first memories, <clears throat> he's already almost a teenager, like mm -hmm. a preteen anyway. Right. And, you know, even when he was in high school, he had a part-time job. And so, you know, there was just a lot of times where I didn't see him. So, you know, I, I do acknowledge that I have a brother and he has a family and yeah. all of that. But at the same time, like sort of developmentally, it's like I didn't really have yeah. a sibling. He made yeah. it. But. Yeah, I, I think with the older or the, not necessarily the older, but like the bigger age differences, it's it's just different. Like I talk to people that have that opposite where they have the younger sibling that's like seven to 10 years younger. And it's more like they had like a nephew or something like, you know, they were more like a, a sub parent role to the kid than they were. Right. And I can see that where they can be a, a caretaker a lot of the times, yeah, yeah. but with not only the age gap, but the distance, you know, that, that really wasn't around for me. Yeah. So what do your mom and dad do when you're born, when you're a kid? I guess when I was younger, I mean, we were kind of lower middle class, I would say. But my dad worked for, at the time, it was Delco Automotive. Oh, yeah. Um, which eventually got out by ITT Automotive, which eventually got out by Valio, which spurred the move to Michigan. So he's a circuit board designer. A lot of the stuff that he did was more engineering type, but the actual job itself what I can distill from it is that somebody would design, you know, hardware that would need to go into a car for some electronic purpose. So a lot of what he did was like with wiper sensors and backup sensors and, you know, is the, the window going to cut off your kid's arm when they stick it out or is it going to stop, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. So he would kind of get the schematics for like, you know, all of this is what needs to go on a circuit board. And his job was to make it all fit on to that tiny board and beat a specification and make sure, you know, it doesn't overheat or whatever. Um, it was definitely the type of job that now, you know, someone going into that line of work would need a pretty high level of education. And Well, yeah, when you're saying that, the you know, first thing I'm thinking is like, was it just a sign of the times that you describe yourself as lower middle class when your dad has like essentially what today it sounds like would be a <laughs> very high paying engineering type job. Yeah, and he, he definitely made his way up to that high paying level um, yeah. by the time he retired. But um, starting off, it, it was a little bit of a sign of the times because he, 
originally got his start in that line of work uh, through Texas Instruments, and that's actually where my parents met. Making um, calculators. So, okay. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so. Is that the only, do they make anything other than calculators? Just I, I don't maybe I don't, I don't think I know anything no. by them. All I know is that. the TI eighty three plus, yeah. and <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, you know, I had a a lot of uh, notes in my TI eighty three plus. That's definitely what got me through a couple exams. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, uh, you said they met, met at Texas, so they. But did you say in Texas too? Mm-hmm. Okay. I wasn't, I mean, I didn't want to jump to conclusions about companies. Just like, I don't know if Texas Instruments is in Texas. Um, right. So you said they met in Texas, work in Texas Instruments. Did they live out down there when your brother's born? I uh, guess they did. Okay. And then they yep. came into Ohio and then you come along. Mm-hmm. And what does your mom so, do at that point? Um, so I guess when I was born or when I was younger, she was mostly mostly a stay-at-home mom. I do remember her having a job at Victoria's Secret, um, like the main like call center for the catalog. Got it. And everything <laughs> is is nearby here. Um, so I do remember her doing that for a little while and having some just sort of little part-time jobs here and there. Um, she did a lot of volunteering. You know, she worked in our school library for a little bit and I think she also tried like a, in high school, I know she did like a treasury thing for the subdivision. I sure. don't know. Um, <laughs> but she did not have a lot of employment in my life. Got it. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what does childhood look like for you with the older brother? Um, I mean, in my mind, I, I imagine that goes one of two ways to where one, you're just kind of like, living pseudo only childish or you're just kind of getting away with or you're getting maybe neglected because you just came along um, all of the above ah. so, <laughs> my brother was definitely more of i guess kind of the wild child rambunctious um got into some trouble here and there like you know, the the 14 year old smoking cigarettes type of thing yeah yeah I used to um, I used to tell on my brother for doing that when he was smart. <laughs> he was not he's smart but he wasn't uh, academically inclined. And so in that sense I think that my parents were very much like this is what he's been doing this one's going to be different. <laughs> Got it. So I had a lot more restrictions you know a lot of uh, my life living with them was kind of under sort of strict control and routines. And I was really pushed into a lot of things as far as, you know, like I started taking piano lessons when I was five and then I got into gymnastics and then I did T-ball and then I did uh, Spanish classes on the weekend at a local community college. And, you know, all, all of these sort of like skills and activities. This is all as a kid. Uh, yeah. It's a lot yeah. of stuff. Stuff. I like built a tree. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was, I, I think maybe in an effort to keep me from going that route. Yeah. And so I, I also had different kind of standards set like where me not getting an A or a B was a serious thing. Uh, 
whereas he was regularly like getting a B was like a prized like celebratory thing. So, so there was a lot more um, discipline instilled in you, or yeah, yeah. Um, which you know definitely led to its own weird set of psychological problems later <laughs> in my how life. It works. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I was I was busy um, definitely as a kid, but on the the flip side of that that came with the sacrifice of you know friendships and other relationships and kind of being a, a normal kid so i was curious so. about that because as you're describing that that's another thing i feel like could go both ways right like you're active in so many things are you making friends in all these like gymnastics or uh uh span i'm trying to think piano probably wasn't a group activity um but <laughs> but like spanish or gymnastics or anything like that so that you're not creating a bunch of pockets of friends this is all taking time away from your social life as a kid correct and um yeah as a social life i did not have one (laughs) uh which i was mostly fine with because that's just kind of what i knew um but that definitely became more of a point of contention with my between me and my parents like later and you know middle school and high school i really wasn't allowed to have friends um can you elaborate a recent on that? conversation yeah <laughs> i had a recent conversation with my dad about this and you know my my parents were both very sort of insular antisocial people um and they had a few friends here and there but like the idea of when i would hear other kids talk about like their parents' friends coming over or a family friend, you know, conversations like that. Like I, I didn't really compute for me. Like yeah. parents have friends and they have their own lives. Like that's, that's no. Um, and there was not a good reason for, for that, that I was given, but you know, he, he kind of apologized for it. And he said, yeah, we definitely didn't really let you be as social as you want it to be. And, that's just sort of how it was. So if I did make a friend in order to hang out with that friend, it had to be like a a week of planning and moms talking and it was only going to be for an hour or two hours. And uh, the only exception to that really was sort of the childhood best friend who my mom had a close friend here in Ohio and they both had sons at the same ages, so kind of a seven-year age gap as well. Okay. My brother and his brother were best friends, and me and him were best friends, but they were also in a different city, so yeah. didn't see him a lot. <laughs> there kind of be a spontaneous "let's hang out, and let's go do this," and so yeah, spontaneity was not really a a thing that I was allowed to. Can I uh, have in friendships? I'm so curious. Um... <laughs> Did this, so did your brother have the same thing where he like couldn't have friends over and stuff? Um, not really. And he would often, you know, just kind of go out on his own regardless. He was, I don't want to say a delinquent, but But kind of a rule breaker. Like, you know, if my parents told him no to one thing, he would just kind of go off and probably do it anyway. So have you unpacked that like, I mean, I, I want to get to your dad apologizing for that because that's that had to feel somewhat validating. But um, <laughs> no, um, 
<laughs> but I'm just curious, like, have you unpacked what the reasoning was there? Like that's, that seems so like overly protective. I'm just trying to figure out like, was there a trigger? Did like, do your parents blame your brother's friends for your brother? Or like, so they're like, you can't have any and friends. Uh, like, that's a, it's a strange no, thing to I, rob a kid of their kid of their friends. I don't really know. Um, short answer. No, okay. uh, we have not unpacked that, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't really know how much there is to unpack. I mean, kind of times where I've brought up, you know, maybe some of those pain points to my parents. Now it's just sort of a dismiss is like, Oh, well, we don't really think anything of it. And I'm sure as a kid, not, I, I, I don't think I asked for much either. Yeah. You don't know any um, different. Right. Right. So like I was perfectly content to just read books and play piano and play video games. And yeah, you know, I, I don't think I really realized what I was missing out on until more of those like teenage middle school, high school yeah. years. So let's, let's jump into those. What you, I mean, what, yeah. what does that look like? I, I can speak personal experience. Like junior high is the literal worst, um, for a multitude of reasons. What does that look like for you? And what role does weird. like cultural background <laughs> play into your Ohio <laughs> upbringing? Um, I think more than I realized at the time. Okay. So I'm Mexican and native American on my mom's side. Uh, and dad is just white, um, white. but definitely as a kid and I've got, I've got the the kid pictures to prove it, but everybody thought I was Asian. Got it. Um, and you know, it's, I can see why, especially looking at those pictures because straight, you know, basically black hair, dark eyes, the shape of my eyes. They, they fit you in a really nice little nerdy. box. Yeah. I have an epicanthic fold, which is uh, pretty typical of people of Asian descent. Um, and I'm sure some other factors bled into that assumption as well. Like, oh, this kid has been playing piano forever and he's smart and he's gift like the math and academically. So I didn't really have a lot going for me that said that I wasn't Asian other. Than yeah. I imagine you don't want to like I'm go not. out on a campaign of like, Hey guys, I'm not like, <laughs> right. But, um, you know, and, the area of Ohio that I grew up in, which is called Bellbrook, just outside of Dayton, uh, predominantly white. And then moving to Michigan, I lived in Lake Orion, which is predominantly white, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, a lot of Polish. Um, but it, it wasn't something that I realized as much, you know, more in retrospect, of course, um, but like, yeah, I don't look like other kids and they sometimes, you know, seemed a little different around me, but that also could be a number of other factors. Uh -huh. But yeah, it, it was very kind of weird knowing that I was different from everybody else and more to come on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but also because I am mixed like 
sometimes I'm white passing or sometimes I'm just confusing to other people, like not really being able to place what I am, but it's something that they want to know. And I've had this conversation with plenty of other people, but like I get asked about my background pretty regularly. That's gotta be a bummer. And, uh, it's, I've turned it into a party game. <laughs> um, it's just sort of a, <laughs> what do you think I am? Turn it back around on them. And but the answers are always very interesting and people are very rarely correct and, yeah. and getting the mix right. But well, that's the only reason I was wondering is like, I know all of Ohio that I know is super white. And so I imagine mm -hmm. there was just like some level of, like you described, like sensing someone treating you or looking at you differently, or if it was just, you know, even as extreme as just straight up bullying for, um, and if they perceived you as Asian, I wonder if you were getting bullied I don't know, incorrectly, I don't know. like, I don't know what the, in the Asian way, <laughs> I don't know what that looks like. Um, I was like, how do I, how does that sentence work? Um, but so, yeah. And it didn't help that like my brother told me like, like I think most other older brothers do, uh, but he told me that I was adopted at one point and I just oh, yeah. accepted it. I lived that life. Like I just, it's like, <laughs> yeah, makes sense. <laughs> you fully believed it? Uh, for, for a minute. Yeah. Okay. Um, cause like I, don't look a lot like my dad. It didn't really look like my mom. And I can see the connection of like my brother and my mom and that yeah, yeah. similarity. But I don't look like my brother. So I don't look like anybody in my family either. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it was a pretty easy thing to accept. And like people had asked my parents before, you know, when I was uh, really? a wee little child. People are so. And, brave in their ignorant questions <laughs> it's oh lot. absolutely and like i i told a manager once about you know like that i get asked this a lot and it comes up in conversation a lot and the longer that i know somebody i'm just kind of like ticking down to when we're going to get to that time that they pop this question because they're going to ask this question at some point and it, he just looked at me and said i have never once had to have that conversation, like been asked those questions. Yeah. It's just like, well, yeah, you're, you're white. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah no, it's like, that. Oh, like, Justin, dark hair, white skin. Are you okay? Maybe one European. Cherokee. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, it's definitely the, something that comes up a lot. So I guess middle school then like junior high, hmm. how does, how do things start to change then once you, start getting to that age yeah so sixth grade was my last year in ohio and then moving to lake orion in seventh grade um it was sort of a weird shift because you lake orion has like just a ton of elementary schools <laughs> and then at the time when i moved there there were two middle schools or junior highs and so those, you know, come together at sixth grade. So me coming in at seventh grade, I unfortunately missed that year where everybody was awkward and new yeah. to each other. Yeah. And then I'm like the new, new kid. And I did not assimilate well. What were some of your coping methods? Just, you know, kind of sticking to myself, which I okay. did most of the time anyway. Uh, but yeah, it was not weird for me to like, take my lunch to the library and just hang out there because the idea of sitting at a long table with a bunch of other kids that I don't know, who don't know me, who also think I'm weird already, just 
because I'm the new kid and I look different. Like, yeah, save myself the trouble there. And yeah, I kind of would eat lunch in the library until I started to make a few acquaintances and classes. And yeah, I, I eventually did migrate to the lunchroom, but <laughs> I spent yeah. a lot of time in that library actually. And, and were you I'm grade, already um, big on books before that even happened? Yep. So that was a... So. That was a nice that, that was segue. my normal escape. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> so I'm curious about the book thing, because um, you play piano, and you were mm-hmm. doing that at a young age. Did you find that as any sort of escape at that point, or was that still too like structured? Um, it was definitely an escape. Music has always been uh, sort of an escape in a way to meditate and calm down and. Uh, not only just distract myself, but give myself a challenge and, you know, way to feel productive when I learn something new or, you know, I'm able to do something a little more challenging. Yeah. And music was a big part of my life through schools. So moving to Michigan, a lot of the other activities that I had been doing kind of dropped, you know, just in the transition of the move. So, you know, I probably stopped gymnastics at that time. Um, I don't remember taking any sort of gymnastics in Michigan. So what got you into gymnastics? Um, Cause if I'm, if I'm living by the heteronormative stereotype, there's no, uh, there's not a lot of <laughs> little boys in gymnastics. Uh, and I could be wrong. I wasn't in gymnastics, so I'm just generalizing based on my own knowledge, but yeah. Um, I mean, there, there are a good chunk, but yeah, it's definitely not like a typical sport to go into. It started because my mom had been taking tap dance lessons at the studio and they offered like a kid's tumbling thing. So I was doing that and then they saw that I was really good at the tumbling, but it wasn't like an actual gymnastic. They called it gymnastics, but it wasn't a gym. You know, there were no no apparatuses, no You weren't swinging on bars or anything? No, that was just, you know doing a cartwheel on a mat yeah (laughs) (laughs) so you come to michigan you lose out on that that's gone Mm -hmm. um where was this question originally going um (laughs) well just talking about your creativity and and that outlet for you and you'd mentioned when you came to michigan like piano i i'm I'm assuming you're about to say that you kept doing that even though the other stuff kind of fell by the wayside yes and music was where we were going with that um yeah, so I started band in sixth grade, and I played the clarinet. Um, didn't have a choice there. <laughs> yeah, you see my lips? They made me play the trombone. <laughs> I did not have a choice either. <laughs> mm-hmm. My mom was always big on garage sales and antique stores, so she would find uh, instruments at garage sales, and she had found a clarinet that was in pretty decent shape, didn't need much fixing up. So when school band time came around and I was, all right, you're going to play the clarinet because I found a clarinet Hmm. and you can probably play it. Right. And I could, and I was very good. The symphonic band and the jazz band and the pit orchestra. So you were straight up a band kid. Yeah. Yeah. Even so much that I joined the Detroit Metropolitan Youth Symphony. Oh, look at you. So yeah, I was part of that on the weekends. Um, so it was pretty much just all music all the time. And if it meant I had to learn another instrument sometimes, that was fine. 
Um, Did you find your people in, in band? Partly. Yeah. I think my problem and what may be a recurring theme for the rest of this is that I have ADHD. Did not know that then. Same sees. Didn't get a diagnosis until like my mid 20s. Didn't really start taking it seriously until like two months ago. <laughs> but at that time, did not know it because I wasn't hyperactive and I wasn't yeah. getting into trouble or especially impulsive. Now, now looking back, there are things that I can see where like, oh, no, that was definitely a, a sign that somebody should have, you know, especially at the time, because this is, you know, mid 90s ish, yeah. like ADHD was really only looked at as like that hyperactive, disruptive. Yeah young boy and uh, i didn't fit that profile but even if i did it probably wouldn't have mattered um but yeah i was always learning new things and i was always like academically fine uh good even just school wasn't really a challenge for me yeah on the academic side of things so always had good grades, never really had to try very hard, never felt super challenged. Is I was just coasting. <laughs> well, you you alluded to some maybe some changes in your relationship with your parents or your social life as you became a teenager. Like how did that look? I came out when I was sixteen. Oh, okay. So I was a junior at that time. And that, you know, just brought its own whole host of troubles. And Can you back up on that for people? Like sure. when, <laughs> I mean, when do you start realizing like, oh, this, I feel this way. And how long does it take for that to escalate to you coming out at 16? Again, there's the, the, in the moment side of things. And then there's the retrospective side of things. So Looking back, I can definitely see signs from when I was much younger, like just feelings towards men and people. And But kind of in those high school years, I, I had a couple of girlfriends in high school. And that was just sort of like the, you know, one that was the thing that was expected, you know, yeah. it's just, you're a boy, boys like girls. Cool. Like I legitimately did like my girlfriends. Yeah. Um, and one I was with for, I think we dated all of my sophomore year and like half of my junior year. And it was strange because I didn't think it was strange. And like, I, did, I didn't grow up with any sort of religion or faith in my life. So yeah. I'm fortunate in the aspect that I didn't have to contend with, you know, eternal damnation or anything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that wasn't really a personal hangup of mine or anything that kept me in the closet for longer. I mean, I didn't really think anything of gay people. I didn't think it was weird. I didn't think it was wrong. I was just sort of, um, okay, they like men. That's fine. That's okay. Uh, but I knew that I was in most terms expected to be in that sort of role where I get a girlfriend and we go to the dance together and mm -hmm. smooch or something. I don't know. Uh, uh <laughs> yes <laughs> it was with that last girlfriend that i think she was just in general more liberally and open-minded and you know had a gay friend that wasn't part of our school and you know and then just as in terms of how i was developing and puberty 
you know, I would have, you know, maybe fantasies about being with a guy, but then just go see my girlfriend at school, like the next day, like, and it just didn't really strike me as weird at all as that I was having this attraction and feeling towards men, but was still kind of doing this playing the part, I guess. Yeah. There was no like dichotomy outside of that in your mind. So it wasn't really upsetting to me. And then kind of, it just at one point clicked, like, maybe I just like guys. Cause like, I, I didn't want to have sex with growing a girlfriend and she was was a little bit more proper, I guess. So like, she also didn't have that expectation of us having sex or anything, kissing probably more. And that was just sort of like a, uh, like if I have to, like on my end. And I was like, well, I don't really enjoy that thing. And I don't feel the same way as when I look at, you know, this, this model or whatever. So for me personally, there wasn't a lot of like, uh, emotional strife happening with that. Yeah. But the, the coming out part, that was definitely the more challenging. Uh, luckily, I didn't really have to. I got caught on a date with a boy by my parents. And that started that conversation. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was definitely rough for a while. I think my parents are definitely a lot better about it now, for sure. But it definitely was a a rough period in time and where I was even more restricted after that than I had been before, which was already pretty restricted. Yeah. (laughs) So I mean, it sounded like it, but what, what does that, what does that reaction look like? I got caught on a date and I was in the mall holding my boyfriend's hand and like we turn a corner and there's like my parents staring right at us. So I got, you know, pulled away from that immediately, taken home. Um, and you're 16 at this point? Yeah. And so my mom's in, there was just a lot of crying. Um, she, even though I wasn't raised religiously at all, she's always kind of been religious and definitely in her later years has turned to that more and more, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so she kind of had some of the religious hangups with it. Uh, my dad was just mad. Um, not the best reaction were, on either side. No, definitely not. Um, there was a lot of yelling and arguing and uh, things that that one time did get a little physical and. You know, my parents were never physically abusive or anything, but my dad definitely did have a temper and it was something that I was always sort of responsive to and always kind of monitored. Um, You know, and even now, like he can sigh a certain way or like he almost growls in a weird way, but like he can make this sound and I immediately just, you know, like tense up and like go into hypervigilant, like I need to monitor the situation (laughs) sort of mode. And, you know, it was a less about like him taking that anger out on me, but me not making it worse. Um, So I was always kind of aware of that and that definitely blew up at that time. So then, then they, you know, wanted to send me to therapy and I don't know if the therapy was supposed to make me 
straight or <laughs> if it was just for my own emotional well-being. But the the therapy definitely didn't do anything that it was supposed to be doing. But um, I'm curious because the way you, you described how you're feeling prior to that, it, like you didn't feel like there was anything wrong with you. Mm. Right. Is that correct? Yep. So I guess in that you kind of created your own resiliency to their reaction. Does that make sense? Or does that ring true at all? Cause I feel like if, if you're in a position where you're like, Oh, I feel this way about men, but I feel like that's bad and I shouldn't. And then your parents are also find out and then they make you feel bad. Like that's just like <laughs> a really shitty sandwich. Um, whereas you're just like, I'm not doing anything wrong. You guys, like, did you feel once they talked to you and like cried and yelled, were you like, they're still wrong? Like, I'm not doing anything wrong. Or did they make you feel like you were doing something wrong? Does that question make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I still felt fine with myself. Um, yeah. Where does that come from? <laughs> like, what role did validation play in your life to where you're 16 and you feel comfortable with yourself? And, I'm not saying I felt like <laughs> good about myself. Yeah. Um, validation is definitely something that I am always seeking and, you know, parents validation weighs so heavily on me because, you know, I did have all these things and I did have these skills and I was expected to do good and perform well and get into the school and get these scores. And, uh, that was, always a very driving factor and I'm like, I just want them to be proud. Yeah. Uh, and now they'll never be proud because I like butt stuff. Um, it's a good bumper yes. sticker. That's the tagline mm. for the episode too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like, I, I don't know if it has to do with just my own personal worldview or what, but like that did not, they're, disapproval of that to not detract from, you know, my, my feeling that this is just who I am. Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, that's awesome. <laughs> that's why I don't, I don't, I don't know a better way to describe it. It just, well, it just seems like you kind of created your own resiliency factor. That's the only way I can think to describe it, but I, I don't know if, I don't know if we can do that. <laughs> I mean, did you, did people at school, were you kind of already out at school or was this? I was attempting to kind of have like a slow roll, soft burn. Everybody will just kind of eventually hear <laughs> that I'm the gay kid and that's cool. Uh, didn't really turn out that way either. My one good friend in high school, Kira, the, a, a Jewish lesbian. Sure. Um, you know, as every gay man should have. Uh, but, you know, I kind of, once I started to tell a couple people, you know, she was definitely one of the ones that I did tell. And, you know, we kind of stuck together a lot. And then I told another friend who apparently kind of had a crush on me. So I think she felt spurned and... Maybe didn't realize like my itinerary for coming out, but yeah. uh, it definitely came out sooner than I meant to. I had sort of mixed reactions because a lot of people were like, yeah, he's gay. Like, yeah. We've been calling him a fag for the last four years. Like, 
It wasn't just to Surprise. be mean. We were being literal. <laughs> um, so forward thinking. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there was some of that where like people were already calling me gay, like long before yeah. I had accepted that fact. So it wasn't like I became a social pariah overnight or anything. Yeah. Um, and again, a lot of the kids didn't even know me. So <laughs> it, Definitely led to a little bit of bullying, but it was definitely not the worst that it could have been. So kind of grateful for that too. As many of you know, I'm in grad school right now to become a licensed therapist because I believe that therapy is so powerful and that everybody can benefit from it. That's why I'm so proud to have BetterHelp sponsor this show. You know, we all have times when we want to talk to somebody and going to someone professional can be much more rewarding and beneficial than just maybe talking to your friends, right? Maybe there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving some goals. You know, I've spent some time in therapy myself and I have gotten so much from it and my life has gotten so much better because of it. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, maybe even me one day. And there's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 15,000 plus therapist network. And that may not be locally available in many areas. And that's why it's available for clients worldwide through BetterHelp. When you sign up, you can start communicating within 48 hours. Uh, You know, you get those light bulb moments when you're laying in bed. With BetterHelp, you can log into your account anytime, send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule your weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room like with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. No awkward therapist breakups if you're not a match. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. I checked that out myself. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. BetterHelp wants you, and so do I, to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com slash friendrequest. That's Better H-E-L-P. And join the one million, nope, over one million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional therapist. There's a special offer for friend request listeners. You get 10% off your first month of therapy when you visit BetterHelp.com slash friendrequest. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash friend request. Remember, when you support our sponsors, you support our show. Did that impact the rest of, like, the rest of high school academically? Like, are you still excelling in everything, or did that become a distraction? Or um, At that point, I was still doing pretty well on track. I think the only time that it really would have distracted from it was my senior year i did get a boyfriend who was older not like wildly older but maybe like three years older but that means i was 17 and he was 20. but met him through a friend who was a grade above me i ended up taking him to prom my senior year which was kind of a wild experience but for all the obvious reasons i would assume it is or yeah, yes. older yeah, guy, think, gay couple, Lake Orion. Mm-hmm. Check, check, check. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. But senior year, I think it was maybe in the later half of the year, uh, it was when I was really seeing him. And 
So I would kind of leave school early to be with him. I still did well, still got good grades. So, and then yeah, is, academically, that was fine. Is college the next thing on the radar? I'm guessing with it the is. expectations of, of the family so far. Yeah. So along with those expectations, <laughs> I had also been told since I was a child that if I want to go to college, that I would have to figure out a way to pay for it myself. Student loans. Uh, well, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I got into all of the colleges that I applied for, um, which was Ohio State, Oakland, U of M, and Grand Valley. So Grand Valley was going to give me the most scholarship-wise. Nice. So I ended up choosing that. So I had a full tuition scholarship. And then, like, I had academic scholarships. I had music scholarships. I had art scholarships. And then I had been working at the pool for, I think, two years at that point. So I had a decent amount saved. So all we really needed to pay for my freshman year at you know, state school was about $900. Um, but yeah, I went to Grand Valley. That's gotta be, yeah. can we just pause? Like, I know you're talking about like you as a teenager and stuff, but are you able to like look back and feel proud of that? Cause that's, I mean, a full ride at other than $900 <laughs> at, <laughs> at Grand Valley. Um, that's pretty fucking sweet. <laughs> like that's Oh, wait till you hear what happens next. Oh, I'm excited about <laughs> it, but like I, I, getting to that point, um yeah, I I did and I didn't feel proud. And th this is going to be a recurring thing throughout this where like I I always have this weird dichotomy of two things being true at the same time mm -hmm. and me feeling certain ways about the same thing, but on opposite ends of the spectrum. So I was proud in the sense that I did it and I, I, I got the thing and, you know, I was lauded and awarded and that I felt like a lot of that came from a personal feeling of like needing to be better than my peers. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of that comes from, you know, being gay, not being white, you know, and having to, I feel like prove myself to show like, like this isn't something that sets me back. This doesn't mean that I'm less intelligent. This doesn't mean that I'm less able to do these things. And I think that's a pressure that a lot of minority people feel. And because there's a lot of truth in that, you know, as far as who gets the job and the interview, the yeah the black person with more experience and skill and ability or the white guy who's able to, you know, talk himself up during that. And so like those sort of cultural biases, whether or not they were really the reality that I was facing, you know, it, it did kind of push me to so like, yes, I can be all of these things despite all of those things. Yeah. There was a so narrative sense, you wanted to overcome regardless. Right. Yeah. So in that sense, I did feel very proud, but that was also a double-edged sword because like a girl that I, you know, was in band with all of those years, she was dead set on going to U of M and 
She had the grades. She did a lot of extracurriculars. She was in National Honor Society. You know, she had all those things that on paper would be be right. Yeah. And I got in and she didn't. And I knew that she had scored higher on her ACT than I did. Um, you know, and she was part of honor society and I wasn't. And so, you know, there's a number of other factors too, like maybe our essays were different or maybe I answered these questions right. But she was very quick to label it on me being Hispanic. And that made me so angry, but I could also kind of see where she was coming from. (laughs) But, you know, like I knew everything that I did and it was just sort of a slap in the face to be like, oh, you're only getting in because you're not white. Yeah. I mean, that's a shitty thing to say. <laughs> uh, well, then when I decided on Grand Valley, I was like, hey, Jamie, you can still go to U of M. I'm, I'm not. You can take my spot. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. But <laughs> No, no, no. You guys uh, said you had a spot for me. I'm just going to give it to her. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's also the, the parents approval type of thing, because it's like, even though I did these things, it was still somehow like, it didn't feel like enough. And I think some of it is simply just because my parents never were very explicit in showing that they were proud or approving of me. You know, if I accomplished something or if I was going towards something, it was like they were always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, I was like, okay, well, you're going to need to keep working hard. Or, or like, it's, yeah. it was never like, just can we celebrate this? Yeah. <laughs> like, can this just be a happy moment? Or why is it, you know, I achieve a thing and then it becomes a cautionary tale. Like it's, yeah. so despite whatever achievements I had, there was always kind of this sort of bitterness to it too. So how does that play out once you leave home? And what is that like being away and on your own for the first time? Uh, chaotic and <laughs> liberating and terrifying. Are you still and... with the older guy when you go to Grand Valley? No, uh, we had broken up probably before I even graduated. Okay. Um, but yeah, I went off to Grand Valley. Uh, the Jewish lesbian followed me. And it was very exciting because, you know, it was the first time that I didn't have to answer to anybody else that, you know, I could stay up late and be out late. And if I you know, mess something up, it was my fault and I had to fix it. And, you know, it was just uh, definitely a shock to the system. And I wasn't really prepared for it. Huh. And college started off very good and exciting. And then Around the, after the first semester, so in the winter semester, that's really, I guess, when things started kind of going downhill. I don't know if that was just sort of from academic burnout or trying to do, I think a lot of it was trying to do too many things at once and not having a sort of structure and system in place already. Yeah. Because even though, you know, in high school I was doing all of these things, there was still that sort of structure there. So I'm waking up in the morning, you know, making myself lunch for that day, 
probably not eating breakfast, you know, getting on the bus at 635 in the morning, you know, yeah, it's very going to school for that time, discipline, leaving that time, getting home, have maybe two hours before my dad will be home. So that's going to be time doing homework or watching TV or practicing piano. We all have dinner every day when dad gets home from work. Then after dinner, a little bit of free time, but then seven o'clock hits and that's when Wheel of Fortune starts Then 730 is Jeopardy. And then there's the primetime things at eight and then you better be in bed lights off by 10, nine on the weekdays, 10 on the weekends. Uh, so that was my life for so it's a very like, long time. <laughs> the, I, I imagine the analogy of like a rubber band fits here where like mm. <laughs> you were stretched very tightly at your parents' house. And then once mm. you were let loose, you just rebounded in the other direction. <laughs> so, yeah. Accurate. <laughs> so Yeah. And it was like that. That was really the first time in my life where I could be social and free. And like those were you know, the social aspect of college is huge. Yeah. And, and you missed out on a lot trying of trying to do <laughs> too much at once and trying to maintain classes and not knowing what I wanted to do. And that being a big looming thing of like picking what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life. But then also I'm in a new city in Grand Rapids is not a large city by any means, but, but there's lots to do. Like there's lots to do. And at that point in my life, that was a huge thing. So I was going downtown as often as I could. And yeah. So it all kind of came to a point where I just couldn't do it anymore. So that winter semester made me realize what the difference is between being sad and being depressed. <laughs> and I went, into this horrible depression um where i could i couldn't get out of bed i couldn't do any of those simple things so like my half of the dorm i felt so bad for my roommate at the time uh but my half of the dorm was just yeah you couldn't see the floor it was just clothes and mess and i just couldn't bring myself to do anything and would miss a lot of classes, but I would still make it sometimes to some classes. And definitely the, the classes that I liked more than the ones that I didn't, but it was just a total struggle. And uh, money was becoming a factor too, because maybe I could have asked my parents for money, but like to me at the time, that just didn't seem yeah like something that would go well that conversation with them so i got a part-time job at old navy so i was working there and then i also got another job playing piano for a local high school's musical practices oh that's interesting yeah the downside of that is that i had to commit you know so many hours and i yeah. wasn't going to get paid until the actual like performance but I had that to look forward to. And in the meantime, I sold a clarinet because I wasn't playing clarinet anymore. <laughs> um, and at that time, I did have a, a nice, fancy A clarinet for orchestra. And so I just decided, like, well, I need to eat. I don't need to play clarinet. I'll sell this 
been really there. nice clarinet. So I was pretty much just doing anything for money and to get by and whatever would let me get off campus, you know, as much as possible. I'm assuming that kind of made me lose my scholarship or maybe I was up for probation, but I did stay on campus for that summer after my freshman year and then just decided I I couldn't go back, yeah. at least not then. And I was just going to work and live. And so then I stayed out in Grand Rapids for about five years after that. Oh, okay. Um, what is that life like? Are you just cranking it full time in Old Navy and living in Grand Rapids? Like what is No, what is Old Navy like? did not last long. It was seasonal and oh. uh yeah. So I actually started working at Steak and Shake. Oh yes. Yes. Do you have the cute and, little hat and everything? Uh I was a server, so I didn't have to wear the hat. Oh, but I did have, have to, to Jesse. Uh you should be so lucky. That's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. And hide this hair? No. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so it was a big change, and I'm I'm actually very very grateful that I did work there, not just because I think everybody should work in food service at some point, amen. Um, but because I really started to learn how to be social and how to talk to people, how to present myself in a certain way, and. I think I developed a lot of social skills in a very short time working in that job. So yeah, I started working at Steak and Shake and I worked third shift. Oh. So this was a different time, you know, this was third shift in college years or college 2006, town. 2005, yeah. 2006. Um, so you could still smoke inside. Oh yeah. Steak and Shakes were 24 hours yeah. at that time. I don't think they are anymore. Oh, really? Um, not most of them. Bummer. They stay open late, but I think like two is the cutoff maybe. But yeah, I would work from nine or 10 at night to seven in the morning. Oh, geez. And I loved it. Oh, yeah. You got um, all the college <laughs> drunk people. Yeah. And it was great because we were just outside of Grand Rapids. So you would get like the drunk college kids coming home from the city. We were also right next to a mall and like Meyer. So like we would get these rushes like after the mall closed and after the theater closed and then when the bars closed and then, you know, your the, the old morning coffee drinkers would start filtering in around six. And like, oh man. But it was really great. And a lot of, I think it would have been differently if I wasn't working third shift because managers would usually be gone by two in the morning. And so for the rest of that time, it would just be like me and the cook. Yeah. And we would still get a lot of regular customers coming in. Like it was very much a, I don't know if this is unique to that location, but it was really like a communal spot. Like I would see a lot of the same people, you know, groups would come in and they would just hang out and drink coffee and smoke cigarettes. And, you know, we've got the one weird guy dressed in all black who's working on his master's thesis, like just sitting there in the corner typing away. Um, Making me miss Ramshorn really badly. <laughs> and so I moved in with a friend around that time into an apartment that was very close to work. Um, so it just made everything really convenient. Yeah, I got to 
learn that I don't have to be socially awkward. <laughs> um, I got really good at kind of reading people and reading their expressions and the dynamics of people. And you know, I just kind of treated it like this social experience and experiment in that I had to fit myself into that. So it sounds like you kind of, with that freedom out there, you were able to really do some like identity formation of yourself and your values. And uh, I know you kind of phrased it as a social experiment, but it sounds like you're, you kind of <laughs> found, you found your comfort zone in a in a in a way that I think back home might have been too a little too restrictive for you to be able to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, what brings you out of Grand Rapids? I was moving around a lot. And other than like a couple apartments, I think I moved like between six and eight months, like every round. And it was much easier to do in a town like that where there are, there is a lot of housing and at different price points. And, you know, you're not doing the full like credit check and interview of an apartment complex. It's just like, this guy owns a duplex in the middle of the city. Like, yeah, <laughs> let's go talk to him. But during those years, and you know, that's when I turned 21 and Party. kind of moving around a lot. And those people, that's where like drinking and some drug use and, you know, things really started to pop up and become more prevalent. And kind of coming back to the east side of Michigan, sort of like I, I think I had kind of run out of other options, you know, I had been in a different relationship. It was all very and, relatable. <laughs> yeah. And that re relationship was ending because of my drinking. And, you know, they had plans with their own friends and roommate to move to Chicago. And I had originally been part of those plans, but I had lost my big adult job that I had secured because I stopped showing up on time all the time. And um, so at that point, I didn't really have the money to get my own place. And it was just sort of like, I had finally run out of my own resourcefulness, you know, cause I had always found a way. And when I was short on cash, something always happened to where I could kind of bounce back from it. And, you know, I just kind of hit a wall at that point where I was just like, I can't ask for money. I can't scrounge money. I was able to get a job, but it's not living up to what I was hoping for. And, so yeah, I decided, well, this is the time. Maybe I'll go back to school. <laughs> and so moved back to the east side, moved back in with the parents, and started at OCC. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Is this when I meet you? When When do we, when do you start working at Best Buy? Short, shortly after that. Let's see. I moved back. Then I was still working at On the Border. So I, I transferred from the Grand Rapids on the border to the Auburn Hills on the border. You know how crazy the restaurant industry is and how... Work late, get cash, get drunk, have fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, how sort of incestuous and enabling it is. Mm -hmm. So drinking didn't really stop and then that led to a DUI and then my parents were like you gotta get out of the house so got an apartment with a co-worker who 
only reinforce the drinking patterns. And then that, of course, when I messed up on probation and that became its whole thing and then hit one of a few rock bottoms and went back home again. And yeah, it was not a fun time. Being back at home, you know, it was easier to stick to probation, which because I had messed up probation, had gotten a little more intense. All of that fun stuff that really makes you feel like you're going to do well in the world when it's all done. <laughs> and was your depression coming back periodically during this then too? Or was that biggest one at sort college? Of. Uh, sort of, but manageable. Okay. Most of the time. So that's crazy to think about. This is always my like favorite part of any of these is like hearing the right before I met you, this is ever all the shit was going on. Cause I didn't know that everything was shit. When um, I met you. Well, and <laughs> obviously I don't mean it that way, but it's, it's just crazy to think about what people are going through um, that you have zero idea. Right. Like mm. I just thought like, Oh, this is uh this is a fun guy that I work with who has a bit of an attitude that I can get behind and <laughs> that's that's awesome. I uh if you were to be like, Yeah, I got a DUI and I got a probation officer and like drinking and me don't really get along right like I would I had no idea. Uh and not that I like my fucking what, twenty five year old self would be like, What I get this. Um <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty fucked myself. Um, so that's, that's just crazy to think about. So I'm curious, fast forwarding, um, and maybe I should know this, but do you still drink? No, okay. uh, hopefully not. Uh. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you, you speak about it as, as being problematic. Um, so I, I assumed, but I didn't, I wanted to ask him. Yeah. So that time period was probably the worst that it got. So just before starting at Best Buy, because I was on probation and in my restrictive parental home, uh, things were pretty manageable for most of that time. And then again, moving out, moving in with somebody, having freedom, I can drink again. Probation's done. That dangerous freedom. Uh-huh. So my my end of Best Buy uh, was definitely related to drinking. And there were definitely plenty of shifts where I showed up drunk. And I don't know how obvious that was. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I might not have still been like, there, but I, <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, so it it has had periods in my life where it's been very bad. I don't drink now, but my most recent lapse was not that long ago. But there, there definitely is a marked difference because, you know, when things were really bad, it was a uh, several, like many, many months, if not year, of just drinking heavily all the time. Yeah. More recent lapses have been kind of like a three to four day binge, and then kind of trying to recover from that. Do you identify and, as sober? Mm, soberish, uh, <laughs> California sober. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I don't really like to put a label on it, and I don't like knowing 
like when I'm coming up to an anniversary or okay, like keeping track of the days just because me being me and how I react to having expectations <laughs> put yeah. on me. Uh, it just doesn't really seem productive for me to do that. I'm hopefully going to be sober for a long time now. But things are a little bit different now too because like kind of coming to terms with being ADHD and taking medication the right way. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's entirely different too because when I first got diagnosed, I was like 25, 26. I was in school maybe 20 hours a week. I was doing 20 hours a week at an internship. And then I was working at Best Buy for 20 to 30 hours a week. So when I originally started taking Adderall, um, I was just of that mindset, like, I don't even really think I'm ADHD. Like, I'm not that hyper, but I know Adderall will help you focus and it's helping me focus. So that was it. I didn't go any deeper than that. So after that was the, the chaotic time period was done, you know, I wasn't taking any medication after that and didn't realize then later how ADHD symptoms would affect me and how that would also play into my relationship with alcohol. Now that I'm back on medication and I have so much more awareness just of what ADHD is, and it's also talked about so much more. Oh, yeah. TikTok definitely diagnosed <laughs> me before. Well, I had already had the diagnosis, but, you know. Yeah, I know. Those <laughs> sort of things started showing up more and more for me. And then doing my own research with it, it's just been interesting. But the, the main point is, is that I'm a lot more introspective. I'm looking back at more of my life now and trying to see how things really fit together and what I was thinking and feeling during that time. And so much of the problem, I think, with getting sober is just, well, remove alcohol and your problem solved. And of course it's not because the... The reason that people turn to alcohol, you know, there's a myriad of reasons, but it's very nuanced to each person. And I think discovering what it is that's driving you to that, that's pushing you towards yeah. that escapism. What do you want to know? Yeah. Finding out the root of that is more important than just simply taking alcohol away. Because if you're an alcoholic and you want to have alcohol, you're going to find a way to get alcohol. Yeah, girl. Somehow. <laughs> so would I say that I'm an alcoholic? Yes. But now how I'm kind of looking at alcohol is a little bit different than just uh, I'm addicted to the substance because yeah, it's, yeah. there's a lot more Oh yeah, psychology and emotional things and developmental things and societal things that go into it than just simply this is a thing that's addictive to me. Absolutely. What are you... Uh... What are you doing now? Now that you're in Dayton, looking dapper, mm. <laughs> piano behind you. Yeah. Uh, so now I am working. I work for Apple now. Ooh. Um, yeah. And I've been with them for, as of last month, eight years. Oh, wow. Nice. It's my longest stretch of employment at a particular <laughs> place. Um, do you have people constantly asking you questions? Are Always. you are you All everybody's Apple guy? <laughs> yep. 
And like, I've had to draw some boundaries, you know, with people. Oh, I bet. Like, like <laughs> I am not at work right now. You are not paying me right yeah. now to figure out this problem. Like, I am sorry. I love you. But all I was going to do is Google it anyway. So, <laughs> same, same, same. yeah. You can do it too. How long have you been down there now? Uh, about three years. So, okay. me starting at this Apple store was just before pandemic really started spend the pandemic in ohio did that work out though because i imagine a lot of your triggers to drink are local here (laughs) so was that a little better being there you think during the pandemic no okay (laughs) (laughs) no yeah i tried and and that's kind of one of those things and saying like i feel a little bit differently about alcohol and drinking is because I don't have traditional triggers, I feel. Yeah. Like, I don't really associate drinking with a certain place. I can be around alcohol and be totally fine. Seeing other people drinking doesn't bother me, and I don't get, like, a craving, like, I need to do that, too. Yeah. Um, And, in fact, being around drunk people is... Hilarious. Not fun. Uh... (laughs) When, when you're not also drinking. So yeah, that's very true. <laughs> my, my triggers more are boredom and restlessness and feeling overwhelmed with everything else that it's an escape or a way to get away from everything. So if anything, pandemic kind of made it a little worse for a while. Okay. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm wondering, yeah, is, does, is therapy helping with that too? Um, like identifying, because the way, I mean, obviously we've been talking for almost two hours here and the way you describe some of the times when you, like the boredom and the lack of structure and stuff, uh, there's it's like all these things that you're your parents structure your parent like your parents made this this world yeah. when you were younger where none of that was a factor and then all of a sudden when you're like then you're just kind of left here figure it out now and mm-hmm. it sounds like you crave that same structure that like kind of fucked you over a little bit when you're younger but um i wonder if uh, like i don't know what what role does that play and then you mentioned therapy. Are you, is that helping kind of identify some of that stuff and and work through it or? No. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Still new. No, I've, I've done therapy on and off for a long time. And I think some of my problems uh, with therapy were one, not, not focusing on what real issues were. And then the other aspect is that every therapist that I've ever had has stopped me at some point and said, you're really intelligent and and really self-aware. And then it's kind of like, yeah, but fix me. Like, (laughs) like it's, I, I think because I do a lot of the processing type stuff on, on my own. And so when I go to therapy, it's just like, Hey, just reporting in this is what I found and this is what I think. And they just go, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I don't, (laughs) not that I want to argue with a therapist, but like I would hope that they would dive a little deeper or 
it, and then it goes into like this whole imposter syndrome type thing where it's like well like if i say that i have this and they agree but what if i really don't have it but i've just tricked them into thinking that i have this thing because i'm so confident and like that i've determined what's wrong with me so therapy is it's been hard to find somebody who will challenge you well will challenge me but also that i truly believe is understanding and not just agreeing with me and this actually was my last appointment with this therapist he's moving to his own practice and now it's like well maybe i want to find somebody else there there definitely are some limitations to to what i think a therapist can relate to the therapist that i've had because they've also they've often been straight white women and we're focusing just on alcohol this most recent one was a straight white man so mixed it up a little bit uh turns out straight white men don't know what like gay men do uh no like not not really you know so now i need to find a therapist who is a gay male person of color who's going to talk to me about these very specific like i'm kind of coming up with like a checklist of what i think i might need that's in a therapist. so but. important <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. awesome that <laughs> i like i cannot stress enough how important that that's awesome that you're doing that like people that reach out to me being like hey i'm gonna like start therapy i don't know what i'm that is the first thing i tell people like figure out who you want to talk to like for a yeah. long time i was like i don't want a male therapist because I'm not going to be honest with them. I'm going to be like, Oh, you're my brother and my dad. So I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm just going to shut down when we get in the office. Um, so like I need a, a woman and I need like around my age. Cause I need to be able to say like cock and not feel weird. Cause you're like <laughs> 70. Um, and that's, that's like the biggest step. Number one that people just don't think about. So many people look for a therapist based on like credentials or just like, I don't know what takes my insurance. I don't really care who it is. And, uh, and then you end up in a situation where you're just like, you know, 15 sessions in, you're like, I'm not getting anything out of this. (laughs) Well, yeah. And it's like, I don't want to talk to the little old white lady about like grinder and hooking up. And like, I don't even want to bring up like my whole, like weird, promiscuous past and like it's yeah is this where we're gonna go with it but uh yeah just not not being able to connect because of those things and even though this last person was pretty good um there there were still definitely times where i found found myself censoring myself or maybe brushing over something that might have been more important just because you know heaven forbid we talk about gay sex or yeah, I have a lot. I have a lot to say about that, but no I sense. will Guess bite sense. my tongue. <laughs> I mean that too, but no, I uh, <laughs> just censoring yourself. Like I've done it, and mm. going through because I'm in, I'm in school to be a therapist, and like learning some of the like things you should never do. I can like mm. pinpoint moments where a previous therapist has like made a judgment. And I have been like, okay, I've made a little checkbox in my head, right? Like, we're never talking about that again. And yep. and like going through and being like, oh yeah, you're probably not supposed to fucking do that, right? And, <laughs> um, and then at the same time, like as the client, I'm like, 
I need to not censor the shit that I'm saying. Um, Because saying stuff out loud is probably like one of the most powerful things you can do. Uh, But also one of the hardest things you can do. So that's, uh, yeah, get get yourself a a nice male queer therapist. Yeah, that's the next homework project. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think I'm 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 good. I'm out of questions. <laughs> Are you good? I mean, I can keep talking. I was just in therapy, and then this. <laughs> I'm like, I'm all pr- primed. I've got my uh, coffee here. I can keep going. All right, I digress. Bye, Jesse. It's good seeing you. Bye. You too. You and I have lots in common. My request is sent. Would you like to be my friend? All right, you just listened to my interview with Jesse Ball. Um, God, this was this. There was part of this that hit uh, a little peek behind the curtain. Jesse and we were talking about ADHD, and I was diagnosed with that a while ago. And um, he talked about hyperfixation, and it kind of crawled into my brain and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I realized how much it affects my daily life when I get caught up in these stupid hobbies and interests and they just bulldoze over everything. Had a little breakdown about it. It was nice. Um, so thanks for that, Jesse. Uh, that was great. I really enjoyed talking to him and I hope we get a chance to keep catching up with all this crazy stuff that we have in common. I took this out cause it was a long tangent, but Jesse is an Enneagram four. And Jesse, if you're listening to this, I hope you've dug in further cause I'll be damned if you don't fit the mold. And I know that cause I fit the mold. Okay. That's all. I hope you guys have a great week. I love you. Happy April. Bye-bye.